Welcome to the Metaphysical Martini Show, where wit and wisdom come together to bridge the gap between the spirit realm and the physical world. With Ani Abadisian, the Suburban Shaman, a production of Cosmic Reality Radio. Hello everyone, I'm Ani Abadisian. Welcome to Metaphysical Martini. Three parts spirit, one part rational mind. Add two drops of optimism, give it all a good hard shake and pour, dress it with the olives of grace and empathy. Sit back, sip slowly, and contemplate the wonder of cosmic creation. And a hearty hello to everyone out there. Hello, hello, hello. Thank you for joining us for yet another round of cocktails on this week's Metaphysical Martini, the show that tries to sort out what's true, what's woo, and what gets flushed down the loo in today's terse, perverse, could it get any worse, some might say cursed, little world. As always, we try to do this with as much grace and empathy as can be mustered on any given day. We are not always successful, I'll admit to that, but we are on a bound to give it a shot. And on this show, the Metaphysical Martini Show, we do love shots. Yes, we do. Our rally cry is awaken, oh my people. Do not follow the path of the sheeple and do not give our God cause to weeple. If you're joining us for the first time, I extend a very warm welcome to you. Be advised, we do not do politically correct because we do not wish to erode our intellect. We martini heads, hmm, we're straight talking, straightforward folks. We may be a tad direct, but we come from a core of respect. There's no fakery here to up our numbers and our views. What you see, what you hear, that's what you get. And we value common decency, common courtesy, and our old friend, common sense. On this show, when we use labels, we do so for identification purposes. We are strictly non-partisan because we believe all parties are in the can. Our world has lost its moral compass. And without a moral compass, the political arena, any arena, the world arena, it's nothing more than a never-ending power play, benefiting a small group of sociopaths gorging themselves on the fat of the land, while the rest of humanity begs for crumbs under a fully laden table. And honestly, by now, with so many repetitions of this same scenario through the ages, humanity should know better, don't you think? Well, that's what this show is all about. Looking at the bigger picture, stepping outside the carefully crafted establishment narrative. And I will say, stepping outside the narrative is not for the faint-hearted. So if you're one of the millions who would rather sleep comfortably in the manufactured illusion, if you are content to do as you're told, eat what you're given, behave as ordered, and believe everything the daily spin churns out, this show is not for you. So move along now. Nothing to see here. Bye-bye. If, on the other hand, you have a capacity for objective thought, and you wish to better understand the marvels of cosmic co-creation to enjoy your incarnation, well, you might hear something of value in the next hour. I mean, who knows? 
life is an adventure, isn't it? And adventures are about exploration, not cunctation. So without further ado, ladies and gentlemen, and whatever else you identify as, let's get on with the show. Now, I had a few letters over the last month or so from listeners who suggested I review my format. Well, how cheeky is that? But you know what? I did. And you do have a point. What they said is, Arnie, too many questions. Not enough time for my favorite segments. I want my favorite segments. And some of you are really miffed about it. So let me say, be ye not miffed, my martini heads. We shall fix this right now. Starting today, we will include a shorter version of all your favorite segments on every single show. And that means we'll start off with a question or comment from one of our listeners. We'll move on to Tarot A Go Go, The Wizard's Gizzard, Plato Chips, The Cryptic Mystic, A Little Pat of Poetry, and by popular request, spend a little bit more time with our closing cocktail recipe. And if we still have time to burn, we'll finish up with more questions. So let's see how this goes. Let's try out this format. And I'm going to drink to you. Cheers with my little special martini today. Um, interesting. Very nice. Actually, um, it's been growing on me quite well. Okay, questions, answers and comments. Darlings, if you would like the contents of your fabulous minds shared on this fabulous show, send your questions and comments to Arnie at ArnieAvidician.com. Or send a postcard to Cosmic Oni P.O. Box 714, Wilsonville, Oregon, 97070, USA. And should your choice nugget of worldly wisdom be chosen, let us know if and how you'd like to be identified. Because if you don't, we will refer to you as omit personal details. All righty. This first one is from The Cat Whisperer in New Mexico. Who asks, Ani, what is your take on social democracy? Hmm. Well, Cat Whisperer, I will start off by saying that most people have no idea what that really is. And I'll follow up by saying that any system, in my opinion, can be a workable system if all strata of society have moral compass and awareness. So perhaps the best way to answer this question is to give a quick 101 tutorial on the systems. Capitalism, socialism, communism, democratic socialism. Most people understand the fundamentals of capitalism and communism. Hmm. So socialism then is considered by most to be a halfway point between capitalism and communism. Do you think that's fair to say? I think so. So democratic socialism, as we understand it, is considered by many to be a halfway point between capitalism and socialism. So let's define these terms. Capitalism, I would say it's about free trade, allowing individuals and groups to develop unlimited profits. And if it's practiced from a moral compass, benevolent capitalism, compassionate capitalism, based on supply and demand of need, not feed the greed, you know, that's nothing wrong with that. That's fabulous, actually. The problem is, with propaganda, we artificially enhance benefits and values of products, like something that should cost five bucks costs 105 bucks because it's got some sort of branding on it. So upsides and downsides? Well, everyone's free to pursue the joy that comes with unlimited wealth. And that's lovely, in my opinion. But it's a free-for-all arena, so it needs some sort of regulation. Who's going to regulate it? 
if there's a lack of regulation, it can end up with most of the wealth being in the hands of the few. So, of course, it's susceptible to corruption, and that's what we have today. But that said, of course, this fiscal agenda would be my preferred arrangement for all things monetary. You know, anything to do with governing, I would I would definitely go with, with, with the capitalist system. Okay, let's move on then to what is communism, which is essentially creating a classless society, absolute equality. And at its core, in the beginning, communism didn't really want any form of government per se. It just wanted to have a group of sort of Russian or Soviet patriots who identified and took down corruption. But of course, that sort of thing doesn't really work. You can't take down corruption without foreign interference. And that comes through funding. So the whole Lenin thing didn't work very well. And then we got on to Stalin and that really woo, was not good. So communism. Okay. Government dictates the price, the supply, the distribution of goods, and uh, apparently of ideas and everything else. So, well, to be honest, that does sound lovely if you have a benevolent government with a functioning moral compass and a socially aware population that demands the government work only for the betterment of the people. But here's the thing, if you're going to sort of put this in place where it wasn't in place before, how do you get people with more to give it up and give it away to people who have less? Well, history says we do that by force. So the regimes that promote communism turn into boot-stomping authoritarian regimes. I mean, how many times have we seen in history, not just with communism, but we've seen this happen. Any regime that seeks to overthrow the oppressor, the new guys end up being worse than the old god. So, you know, again, susceptible to corruption. Moving on to socialism, that would be the desire, I think, to merge the best of capitalism and the very best of socialism. Um, or the very best of communism, I should say. So you get the best of capitalism and the best of communism. That's socialism, is it? Is it the understanding that there should be some sort of free market then, where the government owns and controls all the major industries? And of course, it does this to ensure that the people benefit from the profits generated by the government-controlled industries. And let's all take a moment to giggle over that one too, because it sounds lovely if everyone has a moral compass, but we have to admit that's not the case. And it's also susceptible to corruption. Then we're moving on to, well, the question actually, which was about democratic socialism. Now, jury's out. Lots of people don't know what this is, but this is my understanding of it. Democratic socialists still believe in the social ownership of major industries, sometimes by government or sometimes by some type of alliance of workers or some sort of conglomerate of the proletariat, who knows, they do differ from traditional socialism because they don't like authoritarian control. That would be undemocratic. And they don't like the Soviet style long term planned economy, you know, where the government sets and controls the price of goods and services and everything else. So when I ask democratic socialists, do they know what they stand for? Some do. Some have no idea. But in general, they believe workers should enjoy a larger share of the profits they work to generate. And that's not unfair, of course. They also seem aware of the planned erosion of the middle classes through the trickle down Freakonomics of the Reagan era. What they do believe in very firmly is uh, what I would call robust social safety nets, you know, Medicare, pensions, cheap or free tuition for school, decent minimum wage, because 
they believe, I think quite rightly, that these things impact positively the long-term growth of a society. So, hmm, do we know any democratic socialists? Oh, I do believe we know. Yes, we have one called Bernie Sanders. He is actually opposed to the idea of government owning major industries, you know, what uh, economists call the means of production. And he does want to restore the middle class and he does want to raise up the working class. And he likes the model of the Nordic countries, which identifies social democrats. Um, I have to say, a huge chunk of money is taken out of the paychecks of the Nordic people to give them all this social democracy. And thus far, the Nordic people are particularly good about demanding their fair share from the government, and rightly so. But if the government decided to not be so socially democratic. So social democracy, social democracy, say that again, Arnie, social democracy is basically a capitalist system with a robust social safety net. Not so bad. Again, if run with people, run by people with a functioning moral compass, and if the people are aware and proactive in the running of their country, it could be quite sweet. But I think the point I'm trying to make is, before I get too far into this martini, is when we ask what is a good system, in my opinion, any system is a workable system if we live in a spirit-centered society with a functioning moral compass and a socially aware population. In today's world, the lines are blurred, and I really think that we need to ask better questions of these pandered politicians with regard to the policies they put forward, because deep state has made everything a gray area. Every system on the planet is open to corruption because deep state weaves its tentacles of altered perception into any and all ideologies. The other thing is, of course, a lot of countries, most countries have mixed economies, so that's complex. And, you know, socialism, the word socialism, conservative, patriot, liberal, They've lost their meaning in today's polarized world. We need to look to understand what each candidate is supporting, what agendas they're supporting, I think, rather than looking at the color of his tie or her skirt um, or scarf. It could be the skirt, but it's probably the scarf. Look, I'm all for abolishing all political parties, really, and declaring the government the assembly of the American Republic. No left, no right, no theft, no spite. You know, liberty is a core principle, but again, our world is so off track in the spirit-centered department. Most people who think like me end up building their own communities in rural areas. And let me tell you, uh, from time to time, that's looking pretty good right now. So social democracy, it sounds lovely, but all of them sound lovely if we are working from a moral compass. So there we are. Thank you, Cat Whisperer from New Mexico for that question. I've been to New Mexico. I would love to spend more time there. And my time was cut short due to challenges with altitude. My teeny tiny lungs couldn't cope with it. And what I'm about to say, I know is the very least of what New Mexico has to offer visitors. But people, you have to try the green chili sauce when you're out there. It is amazing. It is second to none. And you will end up drinking shots of it, pints of it without food. It's that good. Oh, thanks, Cat Whisperer. I drink to you now. All right. And now let's go forward with a new format. It's time for 
tarot a go go a little what the heck with your favorite tarot deck so we're using the robin wood deck because it's pretty and i like pretty and this week we review the last of the ace cards the ace of pentacles so let me pick this up and see what information and what sensations it transmits to me Hmm. I like this card. It's green and it's gold and I do love those colors. It has a very lush feeling to it. I would say opulence. Well, pentacles do represent coin. And not just coin, but prosperity in all things. But of course, our human minds tend to run straight to coin, to money. Now, the pentacle on this card takes up about half the card and it's etched in white on a circular gold background adorned with fresh green growth the seed point the sprouting point of wealth remember aces are the seed point the sprouting point and this pentacle it floats above a garden with lovely plants and trees there's rolling hills in the background and in the middle of the card there's a path leading to a single pillar and what should we make of that, I wonder? Single-mindedness, intense focus. If I focus on this path, it will lead me in the right direction. I feel secure holding this card. I feel as though I've made a good decision. I've planted seeds which have now begun to grow. And I believe I will see some early returns on my investment. Not just the stock market, but my investment in time, my commitments. What else do I feel as I hold this card? I feel lucky. I do. Perhaps the return will be better than anticipated. Perhaps someone has noticed my efforts and wants to invest in me. Woohoo! And I've got this feeling that uh, I might get a mini windfall or a salary increase, an increase in my income. Holding this card, I feel the flow of abundance. My hard work, yes, it's paid off. Perhaps that path in the middle of the garden leads to a new job or a new line of work or new projects, new opportunities. Mm, I smell adventure in the air. I think I've made all the right noises and I've done all the right things for the right reasons. I am hoping this is going to pay off big time. Solid foundations for business ventures. Definitely a thumbs up for all things fiscal. Now, what happens when we reverse this card? Let's do that now. Ooh, that shiny golden ball with the pentacle drops to the bottom of the garden like a bomb. Our financial foundations are not as secure as they should be. Did we make bad investments? Were we cheated? Did we cheat others? Perhaps we didn't plan properly. Was greed a factor in our decision making? Did we misuse our funding? Are we putting all our biscuits in one basket? When we get this card reversed, we should review our plans. We should cross our T's, dot our I's, and revisit our core purpose in the venture. Let's not rob Peter to pay Paul. 
maybe our timing is off. Let's pull back. Let's regroup and let's avoid any more unnecessary loss. Let's not be greedy. Let's not be hasty. Let's plan properly and let's go over the accounts with a fine tooth comb just in case someone is cooking the books. And, you know, on a lesser level, perhaps that raise or promotion we were expecting didn't come through. So I would say don't spend money you don't have yet. Be patient. So I'm going to turn it back up again because I do like it in its upright position. Ace of Pentacles, the seed point of prosperity. Lovely, lush, opulent, warm and silky. Mmm, I like it. I like it. Mm. Well, that's the last of the aces. On the next show, we will start with the ones. And it will be the one in the wand suit. Woohoo! That was it for Tarot A Go Go. All right, going to have a sip of my drinky. Oh, I don't have my kazoo. Usually I do. I play with my kazoo. Hang on a minute. Let me get my kazoo. And we'll have a very professional musical segue. <laughs> and now it's time for the wizard's gizzard. A little spiritual ritual that you can make habitual. Well, folks, today's whizgiz is titled, When is a problem not a problem? And a reminder that the wizard's gizzard is designed to iron out the little quirks of resistance we humans have to living a functional and a mainly happy life. We get bogged down, stuck in our creations, unable to move forward because we are standing there immersed in our own goo, mentally exhausted and unable to make plans for a clean exit. We have so many problems. So what exactly is a problem? Well, let's look it up in our handy dandy dictionary. Problem. A matter or situation regarded as unwelcome or harmful and needing to be dealt with and overcome. For example, they have financial problems. Definition two, an inquiry starting from given conditions to investigate or demonstrate a fact, result or law. So it's something we need to deal with. Something comes up and we need to deal with it. Well, isn't that what life is all about? But perhaps with varying degrees of difficulty, like any project, so problems really, they're projects. You change the word, it gives you a different feeling about it, doesn't it? You know, something we have to investigate and deal with in a manner that benefits all parties. So we don't really have problems per se. We have projects. You know, you wake up in the morning and your bladder is full. Project. Find a bathroom and urinate. Mission accomplished. Now that you've urinated, you feel thirsty. Project. Go to water filter. Get water. Drink water. Mission accomplished. Project. You have to get on with your day and you want to go back to bed. Project, find coffee. Yeah, you get the picture. So with all things, as with all things, vantage point, the bigger picture is the key. If we are aligned with our divine cosmic self, 
The answer to every problem slash project is available to us through the vast data bank of the Akashic field, what we call inspiration. And since we already have a sense of our higher nature, we tap into that field, the all that is field. We download the information that will lead us to a workable solution. And that is what physical incarnations are all about, adventure, being present in the experience. You're muddling along, operating within established parameters, and boom, something new and sometimes uncomfortable hits you from left field. Bam! Pew, pew! What was that? Something new? Ooh, new expands my consciousness. And how I deal with it will be recorded on the Akashic Records for others to access. So I will invite the spirit to inhabit my human and the magnificent merger will identify the issue and find a suitable solution. Bring it on universe, I am up for the challenge. That's what we say. My darlings, as with all things attitude, it's the biggie. So instead of cowering from our problems, if we recognize them as opportunities for the expansion of our inner awareness, we contribute to the cycle of cosmic life. And that is such a glorious concept. The only words I can come up with to express my elation are Hakuna Matata. What a wonderful phrase. It's a problem-free philosophy. And that's it for the wizard's gizzards. Think from the divine, my darlings, and all shall be fine. Do I have a problem? No, I don't. I have a project. All right, time for another little sip of this interesting um, martini that's made with rice vodka, which I'll be talking about towards the end of the show. Mm. And now we move on to our philosophy corner, Plato Chips, where we quote a philosopher of note. And today's pick is the chap I started but couldn't finish last time, Benjamin Franklin. And who is this crazy dude? And what did he achieve? And why is he taking up space on my show? Because he was an amazing American, that's why. Benjamin Franklin, polymath, founding father, leading writer, printer, political philosopher, politician, Freemason, postmaster, scientist, inventor, humorist, civic activist, statesman, diplomat. And I have heard it said he made the best grilled cheese sandwich of the 18th century. Benjamin Franklin lived a full life and he lived life to the full. He was born in 1706 in Boston, or as they say out there, Boston. And he was the 10th son of a soap maker, Josiah Franklin. And Josiah Franklin fathered 17 children. Oh, so I'm guessing all that soap had something to do with all those children because people didn't smell very good in the 1700s. And that soap would have gone a long way to persuading your wife or wives to have happy time with you. Anyway, back to Ben. Ben was supposed to join the clergy, but the family couldn't afford the years of schooling the clergy required. So he had some education, I think a couple of years at uh, the Boston Latin School and then some time at a private academy. But he wasn't particularly well educated in the formal education department. So he ended up being apprenticed to his brother, James, who was a printer, a printer of some note, because he published the first real newspaper in Boston, the New England Courant. 
Now, the relationship between Ben and James, eh, not so good. It was a bit strained. Because by all accounts, James was a bit of a bully. Probably he was jealous of his younger brother's blossoming talent as a writer. Ben wanted to write for the Courant, but James said, no, you can't. So he wrote under a pseudonym. And he adopted the persona of a fictional widow he named Silence Do Good. And Ben... He had to push these letters under the print shop door in the dead of night to keep his identity secret. And the column became very, very popular. So much so that everybody wanted to know who Silence Duguid was. And she received apparently many offers of marriage. And it got crazy. Ben eventually confessed and said, look, it's me. But James, instead of being grateful, he became even more jealous of his brother and unleashed more vitriol upon his talented younger brother. Oh, family relationships are so complex. Now, there was something going on around this time. What was it? Oh, yes, it was the smallpox epidemic. And the Franklins, well, they were against this new inoculation, believing it would make people sicker. But then on the other hand, there were the Puritans who always creep up and ruin everybody's funds. I don't like Puritans. They were called the Mavers. This particular group of Puritans, they were in favor of the inoculation. And there were many colorful debates and name calling between the two parties. However, James wasn't very polite to the clergy in his paper. And the Puritans finally had enough of being mocked. And it ended up with James being in jail, leading Ben to run the print works. And then when James was released from the pokey, instead of thanking Ben, he made Ben's life even more difficult. And so in 1723, Ben told his brother, to engage in vigorous self-copulation, and he walked out, traveled a bit, New York, uh, New Jersey, ended up in Philadelphia. And in time, he set up his own print shop there. He had an excellent reputation for honesty, for diligence, for hard work. And he bought the newspaper there, the Pennsylvania Gazette. And I believe he printed the first known political cartoon, which he himself penned. And at some point he joined the Freemasons and that opens doors for everyone. It certainly opened a lot of doors for him. Now, a lot of people know Ben Franklin through the Poor Richard's Almanac that he started publishing in 1733 under the pseudonym of Richard Saunders, who was supposed to be a very poor man who needed money to take care of his wife, who was very demanding. Now, an almanac um, contains things like weather reports, recipes, predictions and other homilies. And what set it apart from other almanacs is the fact that Ben was a superlative writer. He was witty. And many of the phrases that we just roll off the top of our tongues, like a penny saved is a penny earned, they come from the poor Richard Almanac. Now, from that time on, I would say his accomplishments are too numerous, and I could devote a whole hour just to cover the basics. I mean, he helped to found the American Philosophical Society, which was the first learned society in America. And in addition to that, and all of his printing, his list of civic contributions is a long one. Uh, he did major strides in fire prevention, effective heating, electricity. He invented swim fins, a musical instrument called the harmonica, and he also invented bifocals. Not surprised, but he became a major player in the political arena, spent a lot of time in England, which he loved. After all, it's the older established mother culture. But somewhere along the line, he thought, you know what? These British, they're arrogant bastards. I think we need to break free of their yoke. And he fulfilled his major pre-birth agreement 
to take part in the American independence. And how did he do that? Let's think. Well, he was elected to the Second Continental Congress, and he worked on the Committee of Five that helped draft the Declaration of Independence. I know we all say Thomas Jefferson wrote it, and he did, but other people contributed, and Franklin's contribution is significant. So after he helped Jefferson with that, he went away to France as the American ambassador to the court of Louis, I think it was the 16th at that time. And he loved France. And the French loved him. By that time, his wife, Deborah, had passed away. And apparently, Ben was known as a notorious flirt. Well, good for him. And he was so popular in France. He gave Americans such a great reputation that, uh, you know, he was actually there when they signed the the Treaty of Paris. Uh, You know, he had a tremendous amount of influence um, with the sort of Franco-American relations. Anyway. By this time, he's in his 70s. He comes back to America. He becomes the president of the Executive Council of Pennsylvania. He serves as a delegate of the Constitutional Convention. Um, And I think one of his last public acts was writing an anti-slavery treatise in 1789. And when he died, finally, April 17th, 1790, at the age of 84, they say 20,000 plus people attended the funeral. And he was beloved. In fact, they gave him this wonderful title, The Harmonious Human Multitude. And one of his quotes is one of my favorites. I have it on my desk. Many people die at 25, but are not buried until they are 75. And I take that very much to heart. Yes, I do. Ben Franklin Hey, if you're an American or you're interested in American history, there is no way, no way you're not going to know about this man. Get out there, study him, learn about his life. What an example. He achieved more in one lifetime than I probably achieved in a thousand. So I'm going to drink to him, Ben. I think he said wine is God's proof that he wants us to be happy. And people have misquoted that as beer, but it it was actually wine. So I drink my martini to you, Ben Franklin. God rest and illuminate your soul. All right. And now I think it's time for the cryptic mystic. Bum, 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 bum. The cryptic mystic, where we have our way with someone dead who liked to pray. Well, we've all heard of Francis of Assisi. But has anyone heard of St. Clair of Assisi? Probably not. But you might have heard of an order of nuns called the Poor Clares. And St. Clair is that Clair. So as these things go, she was born to a wealthy family. That was in Assisi, which I think is north of Rome, south of Bologna, in the Umbria region of Italy. She was born in 1193. And uh, she was educated because she was uh, from a rich family. She wrote, she she was learning, you know, hello, read, write, spin, yarn, do needlework, all the stuff wealthy women have to learn to do. But there was something about all of that wealth that didn't appeal to her. She was called to piety. She was called in her religious devotions. I mean, she would take food after every meal from her family's palatial kitchens and set them aside to give to the needy on the streets. And her main influence was when she was 18 years old, when Francis of Assisi came to preach 
at the local church there, St. Giorgio of Assisi. And she was very inspired by his words. And Claire asked Francis to help her in dedicating her life to God, essentially. And he said he would. By this time, we're at 1211, 1211, the year 1211. And Claire's parents were thinking it's about time this gal got married before she gets into trouble. And they chose a very wealthy young man for her to marry. But she said, no, not gonna. And she ran away. And she ran away and found Francis. And then she took vows, dedicating her life to God. And this would have been around March 1212, the beginning of what they call the Second Order of St. Francis, for those of you who are interested in religious history. So Claire's sisters joined her soon. I'm just going to, not to editorialize, but I have great respect for people who are born into great wealth and just leave it all behind and, and go into poverty. I wouldn't do it. Anyway, so sister joins her. They move to the church of San Damiano, which was recently rebuilt by St. Francis, and other women join them. And they are known for this very, oh gosh, humble lifestyle. And they became known as the poor ladies, the poor ladies. They were actually the order of the San Damiano. And 10 years after Claire died, that order would be you know, renamed the Order of St. Clair. She became, Claire became the abbess of San Damiano in 1216. And she spent her days doing a lot of manual labor and praying and just dedicating her time to changing the government, the governing rule from Benedictine to Franciscan. I won't go into too many details of that, but Benedictines, while they're into the, you know, poverty and they don't, humility, but they don't necessarily frown on private property, I think. They don't despise money. The Franciscans tend to think that poverty, abject poverty, is in itself a virtue. So she was trying to move people away from that Benedictine ideology into the Franciscan ideology. Um, and, you know, as legend goes, of course, she did miracles when Assisi was being attacked. She raised up the holy host in a window, causing Frederick II's invading troops to fall back aghast. And uh, again, another time when Assisi was under attack, Claire and the nuns prayed for the safety of the town and a storm swept in and scattered the attackers. Maybe it did. Maybe it didn't. You know how legends go. So Claire devoted herself to the divine through the poverty way. She cared for Francis until the end of his life. She was with him when he died, which was 1226. At that point, she was in quite poor health herself, probably because she was too poor to eat nutritious food. But she continued to promote the growth of her order until her death in 1253. And she was canonized 1255. And I think today we have about 20,000 of the poor Claire sisters worldwide in about 70 different countries. And of course, they have moved on from the original barefoot 1212 version. I think there's still the original order of St. Clair who live according to the original rule. But then there's the poor Clare, you know, Collatines who live according to the 15th century reforms. And then there's the Capuchin poor Clares who lived according to the 16th century reforms. And then my favorite name, the poor Clares of perpetual adoration who live according to the 1854 charismas of Mother Marie Claire. So 
Claire of Assisi. Still around, the poor Claires. You should look them up. Very interesting, all of the orders and their differences. So I'm going to have a little drinky poo for Claire. Cheers. Devoting yourself to the divine and the service of the divine, no matter what path it takes, as long as you don't hurt anyone, I have great respect for. All right, well, that's a little bit too much poverty and piety for me. So I think it's time for a little pat of poetry. Yes, folks, after a hard day's shamaning, I like nothing better than coming home, putting my feet up, having a nice cup of tea or a small drinky-poo, and writing really bad non-peer-reviewed poetry. And today's offering is titled The Trouble with Donuts. Thank you very much. <clears throat> Here goes. The trouble with donuts is that they are so very tasty. And with the rising price of baked goods, donuts are one of the few affordable pastries. There are so many varieties. It is an exceedingly versatile bread. But the trouble with that plan is, of course, mm, the threat of middle-aged spread. And you can't really eat just one, can you? I mean, it's not enough to feed the soul. But the bakers, they thought of that. How kind. There are no calories in the whole. My donut indulgence, well, it's confined now to Sundays. And it's plain, no glaze, no centre filled with cream from Bavaria. You know, the only thing worse than having no donuts at all would be a really, really bad case of recurring malaria. Thank you very much. That was The Trouble with Donuts, written by yours truly. I do love donuts. That's why I wrote the poem, because I love donuts. Just how it goes. All right, folks, I think we've got time for some more questions now. So let's get on with that. Oh, first of all, though, let me take a little break to remind you to visit my website, oniavidician.com. And I refer to my website on a regular basis to find out what the heck I am up to. So October's Cosmic Conversation on October 26th is going to be how to prep for the spiritually minded people. And it's all about prepping not through fear, but just because in an uncertain world, it's a good idea to do so. Um, and also I have starting, oh, I think starting tomorrow, four spots available on my spiritually spiritual mastery program and my metaphysical mentorship program. So if you're interested in that, go to the website, read all about it, and then contact me with any questions. So visit that and also visit my YouTube channel under my name, Arnie Avedisian, for lots of short little instructional videos. And I might be up to some other things, I don't remember, but it will be on the website. And you can also sign up for my newsletter, Metaphysical Martini, or is it called Monday Messages? Maybe I've had too much martini and I'm getting the two confused. Yes, it's Monday Messages. Sign up for it and you'll get a heads up. It comes out on the first Monday of every month. Um, yeah, it's a good one. All right, folks, let's take another question. 
maybe two, from our awakened and ever-curious listeners. Well, I think we can put a few together here because I've had quite a few questions from people asking me when I think martial law will be declared. They're saying, Arnie, will it be before or after the election? And do I think it's a good idea to declare martial law? Okay, first thing, I just want to remind people, um, I don't actually work for the Trump administration. I, I wish I did. It would be interesting. So my intel comes from other boots on the ground, off-world extraterrestrials, and people in spirit form. And I'm just going to have to say, while the possibility of martial law being declared is still high, and I'm not the only intuitive, by the way, talking about the poop hitting the pavement in October, I'm not sure whether it's going to be before or after. I mean, today, it seems to tip in favor of before. Tomorrow, it might be different. If we could be 100% sure that POTUS would be back in in November, I mean, I think he will, but if we could be 100% sure, I would say I would wait until after the election, about three minutes after the election, and then I would hit that button if we need martial law to be declared. Do I think it's a good idea? Why do we want it? Why are people even thinking about martial law? I think many people feel that if POTUS gets in, for another four years, the other side are going to hold mass demonstrations that will be out and out civil riots, and they will try to destroy the country from the inside out, rather than accept another four years from him. So that's the thinking behind it. And perhaps declaring martial law is going to be the only way to prevent that, if indeed that is what the other side has in mind. And it's probably the only way to get people to stop running around like deranged chickens, squawking at everything that triggers them. You know, you shut it all down. You take over the bought and paid for propaganda machine, passing itself off as news media. And you very carefully, thoughtfully explain to people, show people the level of corruption that has passed for government for so many years. Then you start making those arrests. I know it's a logistics nightmare. There's thousands of indictments. And you charge those who have pushed the dark agenda and let them be tried and sentenced according to our laws. Now, I received quite a few letters from people who are outraged, outraged with me that I called for the execution of top cabal members. Well, clearly, my darlings, with respect, you don't fully grasp the extent of Luciferian ideology and how much they love their blood rituals. Unless we shed their blood, and that's according to their ways, not ours, unless we end their lives according to the letter of the law, they will not accept defeat. They will just regroup and they'll plan another one world government takeover. They'll probably do that anyway, but this way it won't be for an awfully long time. And now I know this sounds strange to some of you out there, but there are more things twixt heaven and earth, Horatio, than are dreamt of in your philosophy. We are all living within an illusion within another illusion. There seem to be two trains of thought, though, on the other side and with my off-world friends with regard to the martial law. Again, current levels of awareness and the smashing of timelines together comes into play here. Some think the better option would be to say, look, people are fragile, but let them shatter. This must be done now for everyone's benefit. After all, Great Awakening, Pivotal, Light versus Dark. I'm of that mindset. 
Others would say, look, we can do this at a slower pace. Let's do it in waves and it will still be effective. Well, you know, I guess we shall see about that. I check in regularly with my Intel peeps. And I'm ready for the announcement when it comes, whatever that announcement is. So should that happen? And I think that there's a strong possibility that on some level it is going to happen. And we can't really be sure because, I mean, you know, both sides want to declare martial law and everybody lies about everything. So no one knows who's declaring anything. But should that happen and we get into that sort of scenario, go home as soon as you can. Go home, go to a place of safety as soon as you can and stay there. Shut the door. Do not open it. Do not sign any papers. Do not believe anyone who waves an ID card in your face and asks you to comply with anything that does not feel right. Shut the door. Stay home. Another question that we got a lot of. Arnie, were you joking when you said there would be a fake ET attack? No. No, I wasn't joking. Deep State are desperate. Look, behind the scenes, people are clawing each other's eyes out, ripping each other's intestines out. It's awful right now. And they are trying every trick in the book. And as far as the Deep State people go, I don't think they're even pretending to try to be credible anymore. I mean, the only reason they get away with all this ridiculousness thus far is because more than half the population, I'm sorry, is acting incredibly stupid. And they would rather see the world crash and burn than admit they misjudged how events on the world arena are planned and played out. So... I would not be surprised to see ET holograms projected in a town near you. And if that happens, it's fake. Go home, shut the door, put the kettle on. Let me repeat that. Go home, shut the door and put the kettle on. There is no threat at this time from malevolent ETs. And even if such a threat existed, Ashtar Command can easily handle anything that comes their way. Now, the Ashtar Command, those are the good ETs, you know, the nice, fluffy, 10 foot tall, exuding golden light from their arseholes ETs. Those are the guys that have been with us since, I think, 1913, when Gaia, Mother Earth, called out to God and said, God, I love these people. I've hosted them for as long as I can remember, but they are quite literally killing me. And I would really like to ascend into the upper dimensions in my physical body. I feel my physical body is going to die. We've got this World War One. There's, I know there's going to be another one. They just keep bleeding into me. Please help me. And God, in its infinite wisdom, asked these friends from the Pallades and from Arcturia and some Andromedans and a few others to come and put a universal light fortress around Earth 
essentially performing the mother of all energy works on our mother earth. And it took a while to replenish her, to get her strong enough and to put this energy grid up, but they did it. And they have been patrolling and helping her primarily since 1913. So I can assure you that any of the bad ETs, it is going to be an illusion, a holographic illusion. They've been training us through these movies for so long that ETs are bad and they're evil and they're going to come down and they're going to eat your guts and suck out your brains through your left ear. I'm sure some of those ETs exist, but they don't exist in this solar system at this time. So we have nothing to worry about. I will just say one more time. I think that October is going to be an absolute poop storm. Both sides now are trying to convince you of their agenda. Both sides are going to use divisiveness tactics. Both sides are exhausted also. One side is exhausted from having to defend itself against falsehoods. The other side is exhausted from having to keep its deep state power by any means. I think people are losing it mentally. They're emotionally and physically mentally exhausted. If the debate the other night was any indication, eh, boy, uh, I'm not even going to go there. I turned off after five minutes. People, more than ever, it's time to be centered. It's time not to think through your partisan affiliations. It's time to realize that all of these parties were created not to cause balance, but to keep us apart. It's time to take a look at the political arena and say, I'm not going to go blue or red, even though I might have to vote for somebody right now to get things done, but I'm not going to identify as blue or red or green or purple or pink or whatever. I'm going to take a look at the agenda and see what's at stake here. What do they mean when they say it's freedom versus tyranny right now, not left versus right? Please read between the lines. Follow the money. Who has something to gain from this message, that message, this action, that action? And don't do it all on a mental level until you have meditated, done deep breathing, had a lovely warm or cool shower, and aligned yourself with the only part of us that is real, the only part of us that is our true nature, our pure, unblemished, cosmic, divine, raw energy of source. Reminder, please, we are all temporarily individualized manifestations of the divine. As important as the outcome of November's election is, what's really important is that each and every one of us holds in our heart, in our mind, the knowledge of our true self and that that knowledge, the fact that we are indeed magnificent, divine and pure, has to be the primary vantage point and the primary vibration within our quantum fields. Then once that is secure and set and that's the primary vibe, we can go forward and be humans with the spirit inhabiting us. All right, that's probably the last time before the election I'm going to get to make such a fabulous announcement. So, my darlings, we are getting close to the end. So, 
And we're going to start to wrap it up for today. Uh, I haven't quite finished my drink, so give me a moment while I do. All right, now, many of you have written in and said, please spend more time talking about real martinis. Well, no problem with that. Now that I have finished my drink, and that does mean we're winding up the end of the show, I will say that today's real-life martini was a Bedlam and Bitters made with Bedlam vodka from Greybeard Distillers in Durham, North Carolina. And you make that by putting a healthy slug of the Bedlam vodka on the rocks with about four drops of your preferred bitters, and you top it up with club soda, and you garnish according to your taste. Today, I used Fee Brothers orange bitters, and I garnished it with a slice of fresh orange, but you don't have to do that, because there are so many flavor profiles to choose from. Be original, people. And I want to shout out and thank the lads at Greybeard for shipping this out to me, because it's not stocked by anyone in Oregon. I learned about this vodka from a friend in Leeds, Alabama. Why is it different? I'm a big vodka drinker, you know, but Bedlam vodka is made from rice. I drink a fair amount of vodka for educational purposes only, of course, and it's rare to find a vodka that has some character, but goes down smooth without that nasty back-of-the-throat burning sensation. And Bedlam traces its ancestry back 170 years to a rural area in Ireland called Bedlam, it was originally made from rice imported from France. Now, remember, this would be the time of the Great Famine, and some clever chap discovered that you can do more with rice than just eat it. And let's face it, the Irish know a thing or two about the distillation process. Well, they made it for their family, for trade, for barter. They got the process down. And eventually, I think sometime in the 1800s, the Bedlamites, as I call them, they moved to America, and they made this excellent vodka, throughout the prohibition, so hurrah for the rebels of this world, and they brewed it throughout the Great Depression where everybody needed a drink. These days, Bedlam is made from long-grain white rice sourced in Arkansas and Louisiana. It's gluten-free, made grain to glass, blending advanced technology with ancient know-how. Look, it's smooth, it's flavorful, and in my opinion, altogether far too easy to drink. I love the look and feel of their website, they're very polite and courteous, as most Southern gentlemen are. So check it out, bedlamvodka.com, and try their cocktails. And if you don't like cocktails, just drink a small glass of chilled straight bedlam with a beer chaser. It's a sheer pleasure and a perfect way to end a hard day's shamaning. And I wrote all that, by the way. So there. Now remember, folks, cocktails are great if they are an occasional treat. Let's use top quality ingredients and take the art of mixology seriously, because when we do that, one drink is all we need. Hey, I'm Arnie Avedisian. This was Metaphysical Martini, a production of Cosmic Reality Radio to whom we are most grateful. So until we meet again, let the spirit inhabit the human. <laughs> You have been listening to The Metaphysical Martini Show with Ani Abedisian, the Suburban Shaman, a production of Cosmic Reality Radio.